This is New Life Christian Fellowship's weekly message podcast. You can find us online at newlifepetaluma.org. And now, this week's message. So if you're a guest with us, if you're new, again, I want to welcome you. You might be wondering, why are we having a series called The New Rules for Love, Sex, and Dating? And the reason is simple. Back in March, we did a survey of our entire church, and we asked some questions about where you are in your journey with God, how we can help you connect more deeply with God, how we can help you grow. And one of the questions we asked was, what's your relational status? And we found out that just under 50% of our church on any given Sunday is single or single again, or you're a widow or a widower. But every time I talk about romantic relationships, I always talk to married people. And then my single people, you're so smart, I just ask you, hey, would you translate this for yourself? But this time I decided I want to talk to our single people in the audience. There are close to 50% of you, and I, I want you to lean in. I want to have a conversation with you. And married people, I want you to translate because you're incredibly smart. And today, we're going to have the sex talk. Yes! Fantastic! We're going to talk about the stuff your mom and dad were super embarrassed to talk about. When they started talking birds and bees and flower and nectar, and you were like, what's happening? And they said, good talk. Let's pat you on the back and sent you off. We're going to have that talk. And here, God is so funny. You might not believe that there is a God. I believe there is a God, and God has a sense of humor. My parents were visiting this weekend, and they were in first service. So I got to give my parents the sex talk, (laughs) which is awesome. So fun, because how many of us, when we were kids, thought— Oh my God, if I could give my parents a sex talk, it would be so much better than this. Well, my parents did a good job. Listen, I've got two kids, so apparently we figured it out. But uh, this is when you can laugh or roll your eyes. But I got to give my parents the sex talk, and it was so funny. My dad came to me afterwards, and my dad's got a a beautiful head of hair like me. And so uh, after service, he's like, Kevin, could you see my head turning all red? I was getting a little sweaty, and he said, I checked my pulse, and it was really beating because I'm just not used to my son. Like, I'm okay with my pastor talking about this, but my son was talking about it, and it was a lot. I was so happy. I said, this is how my wife feels every Sunday that I communicate. Like, I always say something where she's like, oh, that's— So we're going to have a talk today. And and listen, it's going to be so, so good because, because in the world, there is needless pain. And it's unavoidable. There's unavoidable pain that we all experience. In relationships, there's unavoidable pain. But when it comes to this topic specifically, there is so much needlessly avoidable pain that I believe God really wants you to experience that, that safety and the joy and the freedom that comes from understanding a different way to go about relationships, specifically as pertains to your sexuality. But let me back up a little bit, because this entire series is focused on one big question, and the question is this. Are you the person, the person you're looking for, is looking for? Because whenever it comes to relationships, most of us, we start hunting, we start seeking, we start start even praying for the right person. But I'm telling you, you don't need to hunt for the right person. You don't need to seek the right person. You don't even need to pray for the right person. Because how tragic if you spent all your time saying, God, give me the right person, give me the right person, give me the right person, and the right person came along, and they didn't want to have anything to do with you because you had not become the person that the person you were looking for was looking for. 
And so this entire series is focused on this question. And if you're married, you should be asking this question too. Am I becoming the person that my spouse is looking for? If you're single, am I becoming? God, help me become the person that the person that someday I want to meet is looking for. Help me become the woman. Help me become the man that when I meet that person, that person actually wants to meet me back. And today I want to talk about something. And if you're married in the room today, I want you to listen to this. Because your single friends are going to be swimming upstream if they try to live this out. Everything in our world, everything in culture, everything in media, goes in a different direction than the conversation we're about to have. And your single friends need your friendship, need your partnership, and need your support. And single friends, I want to talk to you about something that I call the 90210 phenomenon. Now, if you don't know what 90210 is, you're not a product of the 90s. There was a show in the 90s called Beverly Hills 90210, and it, it produced this phenomenon, which I would say is probably the biggest myth when it comes to sex. And my goal today is to deconstruct this myth and build a better foundation for you when it comes to your sexuality. And here's the 90210 phenomenon. It goes something like this. Sex, it's only physical. It's just, it's a consenting, two consenting teenagers or adults coming together for a physical act and leaving. It happens when it happens. It's done. It's over. It was a party. It was a one-night thing. I don't even know her name. It's no big deal. It's just physical. And I'm not here to rail against movies or media, but can we be totally honest? Everything in the wider culture around us tells us that the sum and total of sex is that it is a physical act. Now, if that is true, I want to ask you a few questions. If it's only physical, why is it that those of us in this room, and in a room this size, I know there's some of you here, why is it that those of us in this room who experienced sexual molestation as children carry so much deep hurt and pain into adulthood? Well, one theory would be, well, an authority figure over me betrayed my trust. Well, that's definitely true, But can we be honest? When you're a child, at some point in your childhood, an authority figure over you is going to betray your trust. Think about my poor kids. I'm their dad and their pastor. Like, I got the double whammy. I just set aside money every month for counseling because I guarantee you at some point in their life, I'm going to promise something and not come through. I'm not going to be perfect. I'm going to betray their trust. But something around sex, it's a whole different level, isn't it? Why is it that rape is so incredibly damaging? Even more so and in a different level than, than domestic violence or being beaten up. If it's only physical, why is, why is it so, so painful? Let me zoom out a little bit. Why is it that most of your greatest regrets in terms of relationships have to do with sex? Why is that if it's only physical? Well, the answer is simple. Listen, guys, it's not just physical. It's not. Sex is about something way, way more than just physicality. It's way more than, oh, it was just spring break. It was just a party. We just have hormones. Listen, if it's just physical, 
then it would make sense. And this is what the wider culture is telling us at 12, 13, 14, when boys, when, when your hormones are just squirting out of your ears, why not just have sex? It's just physical. Come on. Like, ugh. Am I the only one who was a teenage boy? If it's just physical, it makes sense that your 12-year-old or 13-year-old is wanting to go out and have sex. But it's more than physical. And we all know this intuitively, that it's way deeper. It's way more than just physical. See, God, who designed sex, designed it around one word. And this word is almost never used in the context of sex. And the word is intimacy. Sex was designed for intimacy. And intimacy simply means to know and to be fully known. There's this ancient letter that is in the very beginning of your Bible called Genesis. It's all about creation and the creation of all things. And in it, God is designing the world. And in however God did that, he spoke and the world was. And he made animals and he made people. And then, and then God looked over at the angels and was like, you guys, I got an idea. And the angels were like, what is it? And God was like, now you wouldn't understand they're like, what, what, what? I'm going to give man and woman sex. And the angel said, well, you gave the animals sex. Horses have sex and dogs have sex and cats have sex. And God looked at the angels and said, yeah, but I've created humanity above the animals. And I'm not giving them sex purely for procreation. It's not a physical act. This is one of the things that separates us from animals. See, I'm going to give them sex in the right context as a way of opening themselves up fully to be known by another human being and to know another human being and to be completely laid bare and experience no shame. That's God's design for sex. And wouldn't it make sense that if God really is what we just sang about in that last song, a good, good father, wouldn't it make sense that if sex in the wrong context has led you to some of your deepest regret and pain, wouldn't it make sense that your good, good father would have something to say about your sexuality Jesus goes on to say this, the way that we experience intimacy through sex is supposed to paint a picture of the way that your heavenly father wants to be known and to know you, wide open, laid bare, no shame, no guilt, no fear, that we could come to God and be fully known by him in all of the good and all of the mess and to have no shame or fear or hiddenness and sex is a picture between two people of the relationship that your heavenly father wants to have with you. So wouldn't it make sense that God has a lot to say about this in the pages of the Old and New Testament of the Bible? And in fact, he does. And one of my favorite passages comes from this guy named Paul. Paul is this incredible thinker. Uh, he's a thought leader of his time. He's a philosopher. He's a religious leader. And he would walk around. He was a world traveler. He'd walk all around the ancient world. And he'd get to these cities and see where they were and see what they needed. And then he would speak to them about where they were and where God was and how they could find God in the midst of their story. And he walks into the city called Corinth, and you have to understand Corinth. Corinth was like Vegas on steroids. Corinth was like the hub of debauchery. If you, like, if you had no moral 
grounding. If you just did whatever you wanted to do, in the ancient world, they said you were Corinthianizing. Like that was what they said. What happens in Corinth stays in Corinth. It was like that, okay? And Paul walks into Corinth and he looks around and he realizes, oh my goodness, no one has talked to these people about God's vision for sex. And I can see it everywhere. And so he says, I just, he writes this letter to just a small group, not to everybody, because God's, God's not the moral police of everybody. He writes this letter to the small group of Jesus followers, and he says, I get that the wider culture is floating downstream, but I'm going to talk to you about God's grander vision for your sexuality that would have you swim upstream towards freedom. And this is what he says. It's, it's brilliant. Watch this. Paul says, I want you to flee. And, and that word flee in the original language, it just means run away. Okay, run away. I want you to run away from all sexual immorality. Don't try to stand firm to it. Don't try to reason it away. Run away. Run away from all sexual immorality. And in the next chapter, in 1 Corinthians 7, he defines sexual immorality. Sexual immorality, he says, husbands, sex with anyone except your wife is sexual immorality. Wives, sex with anyone except your husband is sexual immorality. If you find yourself there, run away from all sexual immorality. Why? And this is where he just gets brilliant. He's about to say something that 2,000 years later, you know intuitively to be true, but he said it 2,000 years. He was so far ahead of his time. Listen, you should read your Bible. It's so good. And this stuff is just all over the pages of the Bible. He says this, all other sins that a person commits, sin just simply means the choices you and I make that leave a wake of destruction behind us. It's hurting us. It's hurting other people. It's hurting our good, good father because we're hurting other people. All other sins a person commits, which means what he's about to say next is different than everything else. Categorically different. Every other painful act that we cause leads one direction, but sexual immorality goes a different direction. He says this, all other sins a person commits are outside of the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. When we live outside of God's sexual design, and you know this to be true, it hurts deeper than anything else. Because sex was designed in the context of marriage to be a beautiful picture of being fully known. It's a picture of of a commingling of mind and spirit and soul of two unique persons becoming one. And here's the thing, when two become one, it can't get undone. And every time two become one and then we try to get it undone, we leave a piece of ourselves over here and we leave a piece of ourselves over there. And it's so incredibly painful. Let me try to explain it like this. How many of you have heard of a Stradivarius? Anybody? No? Okay. A couple, you're so cultured. Look at you guys. Whoa, his hand's way up in the air. Yeah, good for you. He's like, yeah, I heard of him. Stradivari was an Italian uh, artisan who made the most incredible stringed instruments in the early 1700s. I mean, incredible. Stradivari, uh, one of his violins, it was actually Napoleon Bonaparte's violin that Stradivari made for him. It sold for $3.5 million. That's incredible. Have, Have you ever seen one of these? Have you ever seen... It's incredible. Like the sounds that Stradivarius uh, instruments make is like nothing 
else. Uh, come here, I wanna, come here, come here, come here, come here, come here, come here. I want you to catch this. Oh, oh. No, it's okay, no, come here, come here, come here. It's okay, it's okay. I want you to hold it, you can just hold it. Okay, you can pass it, pass it around. Pass it around to your friends, check it out. Like, I'll try to grab that if I remember after service. Would anyone ever do that with a Stradivarius uh, piano or keyboard or uh, violin? No. By the way, that's not a Stradivarius. If I owned a Stradivarius, you should ask how much money I make, okay? Like, you should be asking some serious questions about our church budget if I had an original Stradivarius. But isn't it interesting that God says this about you? He says, you are infinitely more valuable than a Stradivarius. If that thing breaks, it can be replaced. But there's only one of you, and you can't be replaced. If someone, yeah, we can leave that there. It's fine. I'll grab it later at some point. Listen, you have one shot at life, and you hold this incredibly fragile thing called your sexuality. And what you do with it really matters. Paul would say, because all other sin is outside of the body. But anyone who sins sexually sins against their own body. You are hurting yourself. Then he goes on to say this, do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? First of all, they would say, no, we didn't know that. Do you know why? Because in Corinth, that was a major way to worship gods and goddesses. You would go to a temple, you'd pay a little money, you'd sing a few songs, you'd have sex with a prostitute. Rinse and repeat. Like, guys were flocking to church back then. I couldn't figure it out. That's, that's inappropriate. It's inappropriate. Here's something interesting. Let's just zoom out for a second. Here's something interesting. All man-made religions— all cults, when you think of any cult leader today, when you think about the origins of any man-made religion, all man-made religions have something in common. Those in power use their power to distort sexuality for their pleasure. Think about all the cults that you've heard about. Think about this ancient cult. This is one of the many ways that you know that Christianity is not a man-made religion because Christianity comes in with a sexual ethic that says women and men are on equal playing ground and they are made in the image of God and worthy of divine respect. But throughout Corinth, if you wanted to go worship God, you'd go and you'd have sex with a prostitute. So they would say, no, we didn't actually know that. And they'd lock in on this one word, unites. That word unite, it literally, it means two things joining together in a way that they cannot be unjoined. And these guys listening to Paul would say, what are you talking about? We're not uniting with prostitutes. We're just having sex with them. It's a physical act. It's just sex. Paul says, no, you don't understand the power and purpose of sex. It's not just a physical act. It is a commingling. It is a two becoming one. In fact, he goes on to quote Jesus, who's quoting the very beginning of the Bible in Genesis. Paul says this, For it is said, the two, in the context of their coming together, the two will become one flesh. And when two become one, they can't come undone. And any time we prematurely make two become one, and then it tears apart, we lose a part of ourselves. That's why Paul says, it's like no other sin, because it's 
hurting you so badly. And you and I know that to be true. And then Paul goes on to talk to, to Christians, to Jesus followers. So if you're here and you're not a Christian, you can just listen in. But Jesus followers, this is, like, this is really for you. He says again, do you not know? Because they actually didn't know. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own, he goes on to say. You are not your own. You've been bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your bod. That's good. He says, don't you know that when you become a follower of Jesus, God's spirit in a very real way lives in you? To which they would say, no, I didn't know that. I thought I was here. Sex was sex. God was somewhere over there. He's not really concerned. Paul says, no, you're missing, you're missing it. When you become a follower of Jesus, God's spirit lives here, giving you the desire to do what's right, the wisdom about what is right, and the power to do what God wants for you, not from you. Then he goes on to say, you've been bought with a price. What on earth does that mean? Well, I talked about sin. Sin is anything that we do that hurts us, hurts other people, and breaks the heart of our Heavenly Father. It leaves a wake of destruction behind us. And because of sin, we could not be made right with God until someone paid the price for that sin. And all sin leads to death. Personal death, relational death, spiritual death, moral death. And we're told that Jesus actually gave his life to pay for our sin so that we could live in freedom. And Paul's reminding the people, don't you remember what you saw? That Jesus walked this earth. He's the most well-documented historical figure in the world. That he was crucified and the Romans wrote about it and the Jews wrote about it and Jesus' followers wrote about it. He was buried and then he rose again three days later. And when he did, he paid the price for your sin and he gave you his spirit so that you never had to be alone and you can live in freedom Therefore, because of all of that, honor God with your bod. Now, I want to talk for a second because everything I'm saying right now, it goes completely counter our, our wider culture. Like everything I'm saying right now. And internally, some of you are pushing back against me. Like you're really, you're having arguments with me. You're probably winning because you're smarter than me. Let me just try to give voice to some of your pushback. One of your pushbacks could be this. Listen, sex and sexual behavior, it's just a matter of personal preference. That's fine for you, Kevin. You're a Christian. You're a pastor. Kevin, you do you. I'm going to do whoever I want. You know what I mean? Like, it's just personal preference. But sex is not a matter of personal preference. And we know this because sex has... has um, has characteristics associated with it. It's an if-then every time. Art. Art is a matter of personal preference. You can like a certain type of art. I can like a certain type of art. It doesn't lead to a prescribed outcome. We just like different art. It's a preference. Sex is more like your diet. You can choose to eat fatty, high-starchy foods, but there's a predictable outcome associated with it. Or you can eat really healthy foods and vegetables and, and not have super burritos all the time, and there will be a predictable outcome associated with that. Sex has predictable outcomes. Come on, anyone who has experienced sex outside of God's design for them and then had that relationship end, you know the outcome. It's pain. It's pain. And what would you expect your Heavenly Father to say to you 
about something that he knows causes you unneeded pain. He would say, run away, (laughs) run away. It's not a matter of personal preference. Sex is actually a matter of divine design. We have a designer. He created sex. I titled this message, Designer Sex. We have a designer. He created sex on purpose for a purpose. And the purpose is intimacy with someone in a lifelong relationship that points you to the intimacy that your Heavenly Father wants to have with you. Here's the next pushback that you're probably thinking about right now. Yeah, but Kevin, practice makes perfect. Okay, single people, single people, I know you don't believe this. Like, I know. Come on. There's my singles. I see you. I know you're too smart to believe something like this. That is ridiculous. No married couple ever looked at each other on their wedding night and said, I'm so glad you practiced with so many people. (laughs) And she said to him, I am so glad you had so much practice with so many people. We're almost perfect. No couple ever said, we're so good at this. We should enter a contest. Like, we had so much practice. We're perfect. No. You know what practice makes? You know what practice makes? Practice makes insecurity. You know what practice does? Practice gives him him someone else to think about when he's making love to you. You know what practice does? Practice makes you insecure about how you perform compared to the other guys. That's what practice does. And let me tell you this, from 12 years of marriage, I made a lot of mistakes in my dating relationships. I treated women poorly. I had to go back and to apologize to many, many of them. But one of the things that I'm so proud of is that I saved my virginity for my wife. I waited for my wife until we got married. I did, and it was so, so good. Thank you. You're the first person that clapped. And guess what? We figured it out. We figured it out. We have two kids to prove it. Listen, if you want to practice, get married. You can practice for the rest of your life. Practice makes it ridiculous. That's ridiculous. Here's the thing. True romance. True romance is fueled by exclusivity, not practice. You know what true romance is? My wife travels one week a month for her job. She flies across the country True romance is the fact that she can get on a plane and go to work and I don't have to worry because of exclusivity. You know what true romance is? Is your husband going out with the guys to a game and you not having to worry about who he's looking at and what he's thinking about. True romance is fueled by exclusivity, not practice. Here's the thing. I want to give you singles a couple thoughts on some next steps. Because I know this message hits us differently. For some of us, this message is just bringing up a lot of regret. And boy, I'm so sorry. I don't want that for you. In fact, I want to give you a way at the end of our time together to deal with some of that regret. For others, it brings up shame. And I want to tell you, your Heavenly Father does not want you to live in shame. He wants you to live in freedom. He purchased you out of shame so you could experience freedom. Some of you are saying, amen, preach it. Not very many of you, but some of you. Those of you who are have teenage sons or daughters. I know you. Come on. You're all like, yeah, baby. Yeah, baby. Keep going. Hour-long message. I want to give you singles some next steps to lead you to freedom. The first is this. I want you to determine the story you want to tell. 
Every one of us, when we get into that relationship that's going to end in marriage, has a talk at some point. It could be when you're out to dinner. It could be when you're walking across the, along the beach, drinking a cup of coffee together, and the conversation is around your past relationships and your past sexuality. We all have that because marriage is about laying ourselves bare before another human being, and part of preparing for that is honesty about our past. And if you're single, I want you to determine what story you want to tell. There are two possibilities. One possibility is this. I slept around a lot. I was all his, but now I'm all yours. And when I say I do, I'll do the best I can. But there's a better story you could tell. You could say, yeah, I went outside of God's plan for my sexuality. But then one Sunday I heard this talk and it clicked for me. And I made a decision right then and right there to honor God with my bod. And I was resolute. And it wasn't easy. But from that moment on, I worked to become the person that the person I was looking for was looking for. And I saved myself from that moment till this moment for you after we say, I do. That's the story I want for you. And I'm telling you, if you, if you tell that story, you're swimming upstream, which is why this next thing is so important. I need you to determine what honoring God with your body looks like. You got to determine before the date, okay? Before 11 o'clock, like you got to decide as a high school guy, what's it look like to honor God with my bod? As a college woman, what's it look like to honor God with my bod? As a young professional, what's it look like to honor God with my bod? As someone who has been divorced, what's it look like now to honor God with my bod? What's it look like? Because here's the thing. When it gets late and you're having all the feels and the hormones are squirting out of your ears, it's too late. Listen, decide now. I'm not going to spend the night at his house. Decide now how far we're going to go sexually. Decide now. Decide it with God, not with them. And don't decide it at midnight. Decide now. We're not going to share a sleeping bag together when we go camping. Listen, I don't know who you are. If you think you can go out, share a bed, and like, hey, it's cool. Wow, you're stronger than me. And that's hard. When you're drawn to someone, when the chemistry is strong, decide now what it looks like to honor God with your body. And wait for marriage. Waiting for marriage is not a sacrifice. It's not. It's an investment. Here's the thing. Giving up something now for something better later, that's no sacrifice. It's an investment. Think about setting your budget. What is a budget? A budget is before I get my money, I'm going to decide where my money goes. That's not a sacrifice. That's an investment. I want you to set up a sexual budget. Before I get to that moment, before we're on the doorstep, before we're in the bedroom, I'm going to decide where my sexuality goes. Because while you might be the one for right now, I'm looking for the right one, not the right now one. Decide now, and it's not a sacrifice. It's you investing in the person that you want to spend the rest of your life with. It's you being able to say to them, I decided, I was resolute. I was going to wait. And then choosing to do it. Because ultimately, it brings intimacy between you and them. And even more importantly, it brings honor to your heavenly father who bought you with a price so that you could live in freedom. I'd like our worship team to come out and they're going to actually play a song. The song is called How He Loves. And in that song, there's this line that really struck me. It says this, 
I don't have time to maintain these regrets when I think about how he loves. And I get it, in a room this size, we've got a lot of different feelings around this topic and probably a good amount of regret. And I want for you freedom. So what I'm going to do in just a minute is I'm going to invite you to go to one of these tables. Around these tables, there's a little piece of bread and a little cup of juice. On the night before Jesus was crucified, he said, this bread represents my body which is given for you. And he said, this cup, he had wine, we have juice, it's only, you know, 11.55. We have juice. He said, this cup represents my blood which is poured out for you when I paid the price for your sin. And then he said to him, I want you to take the bread, take the cup, and remember that I paid for your freedom, that you don't have to live in regret, you don't have to live in shame, you don't have to live in fear, you can live in freedom. Part of the way to do that is to talk to God about your story. He knows, he wants you to invite him in. If you've got sexual regret, Talk to God. If you're married, but you lived outside of God's plan for your sexuality before marriage, and you've never actually talked to God about that, talk to him today. God, I'm sorry, I missed that. Would you forgive me and bring healing? If you're here and sexuality, your sexuality has, has caused pain, you lived outside of God's plan, today's the day to say, God, would you come and would you make me new? Would you forgive me and would you heal me and would you show me what it looks like to live with you in freedom around my sexuality? And would you show me how to write a better story? And God will do it. Because oh, how he loves. Oh, how he loves. I'm gonna pray and then I'll invite us to grab a piece of bread and a cup of juice, make your way back to your seat. Just talk to God. Let's pray together. Jesus, I pray for my single friends Oh man, everything around us is pointing us in a different direction when it comes to our sexuality. God, my friends who are choosing to honor you with their bodies are going to be swimming upstream in a culture where it seems like all the people are swimming the other direction. So would you give my friends assurance that this is from you? Courage to make the choices beforehand that are right and honoring to themselves, to their future partner, and to you. God, for all of my friends in this room, if we have some areas of brokenness around the use of sex and the misuse of sex, God, would this next few minutes be a time of healing, a time where we come before you, our good, good Father, and we're totally laid bare and honest about our past, where we would sense your forgiveness and the freedom that only you can offer. God, would you do that work now? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Friends, let's stand up. Go ahead and grab a piece of bread and a cup of juice as the team sings.
so grateful for that this morning. A little love greater than we can actually comprehend. But a love that tells us who we are. We praise you for that this morning. In your name, amen. You guys have a great rest of the day and we'll see you here next week. you enjoyed this week's message. You can find more information about New Life, including contact information at newlifepetaluma.org. Thanks for listening.